and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Jordan Cohen, policy analyst in defense and foreign policy at the Cato Institute. Jordan, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. You do a lot of work on the risks of U.S. arms sales to foreign countries. Uh, you, along with others, have developed the Arms Sales Risk Index. And there have been a number of these now going back, I think, five years, an updated report comes out. Um, before we dive into the index itself, maybe you could just start by giving people a sense of the scope of U.S. arms dealing in general. Uh, are we the world leader? How much do we dish out compared with other countries? Uh, what do we dish out? To whom? All that stuff. Yeah. So the U.S., compared to pretty much every other country, sends weapons to a substantially wider swath of customers and in substantially higher dollar values. The U.S., generally speaking, will send to any country. There are a few countries that there are kind of U.N. sanctions against, and the U.S. does not send to those countries generally. Now, it has in the past once Lebanon had an embargo on it or a sanction on it, and the U.S. overrode that. But generally speaking, the U.S. sends to more or less any country that's willing to pay. Since 2009, they've sent weapons to 169 different countries. The dollar value is in the trillions total. Saudi Arabia is traditionally the biggest customer. They buy every year and they are prioritized every year. So Mike Gallagher, who's Republican, has kind of hit on this a lot. But Saudi Arabia, no matter the year, no matter the weapon, is prioritized over countries like Taiwan that one can make an argument are strategically more important. The Gulf in general tend to be really reliable customers. Again, you kind of see Gulf countries buying every year. You see NATO countries buying every year. And then every once in a while, you kind of get a country that is tends to be a little bit smaller that will just buy a few $10, $20 million of weapons. So kind of the latest example of that uh, that's in the news anyways is Niger, who's bought a few hundred million in weapons. Yeah, we'll get to Niger in a little bit. What's your big picture story about why the United States is this unique player in the global arms trade? There are various explanations, you know. Surely there's some strategic logic and there's probably some more nakedly political rationales I can conjure up. Uh, there's public choice type of explanations where it's sort of institutional or bureaucratic or private interests and parochial interests that are that are making this happen. How do you see it? Yeah. So I really, to me, it comes down to two different reasons. The, now, before I get to those two, there is kind of the cynical political reason, which is just politicians need to keep jobs in their states and politicians and districts that have weapons manufacturers will tend to vote for more weapon sales. I don't actually buy that too much because Congress doesn't a really approved sales. The default is an approval. The president gets to send weapons wherever he, he wants, and Congress historically has never stopped a single sale. So I think it comes down to two reasons. The first is economics. The weapons go for a lot of money, and it's very difficult for politicians to turn that money down, generally speaking, and, I, and that mainly presidents. I think I mean, Donald Trump nakedly did it, but Bill Clinton said this too in his kind of conventional arms transfer policy, where Bill Clinton said, the big reason we're selling weapons is because it means trade, it means economic benefits to the country. W. Bush kind of hit it a little bit in his kind of arms policy. He did not talk about money as much. Obama didn't talk money as, about money as much. 
And then Trump brought it, brought it right back where he said it's the main reason. So I think that's a big one. I think that's why every year you see Saudi Arabia getting these weapons is they are big purchasers. Presidents just kind of approve those that there's very little deliberation. The second is I think there is a strategic logic. I, I do think, unfortunately, sometimes that strategic logic comes in second place. And that's kind of when you see, again, I'm just going to keep ram, uh, like railing on Saudi Arabia, but that's when you see Saudi Arabia get those weapons is when the economic logic is prioritized over the strategic logic. But there is a strategic logic. I mean, Taiwan is a key example of that, that Taiwan buys weapons every year is kind of laid out in the uh, Taiwan Relations Act. And I think that logic does exist, I think, for NATO countries, I think for South Korea, for Japan. The U.S. generally kind of argues from the strategic logic. Okay, so let's unpack the arms sales risk index. Um, the basic idea you've come up with is it's a way to quantify the risks associated with U.S. arms sales to specific countries. Tell us about how you actually make that assessment. You know, what, what are the risks that you identify? Yeah, so the basic kind of idea behind the index is, as I kind of just said, the inertia for sales is to happen, right? The, the Generally speaking, every year sales are going to happen because the inertia says the U.S. has to sell weapons to these countries. The idea behind the risk index was to say, okay, it does not seem like the U.S. cares at all about the risk in a weapons transfer. Generally speaking, the U.S. just, again, we send risky countries, even though those countries sometimes do bad things with the weapons. So the idea was to say, okay, let's see what's going on. Maybe we could help policymakers. Let, let's kind of analyze the risk. And the big thing we found over the past five years is policymakers don't really consider risk. At least presidents don't. There's very little Congress can do. So to measure risk, we kind of look at these four vectors, right? So we look at state fragility. We look at freedom in the countries. We look at if those countries are at war. And we look at corruption. And between these four vectors, we try to get at different risks. So dispersion, weapons dispersion is a big one every year that we see a lot, that the U.S. sells weapons somewhere and those weapons end up in the wrong hands. Another one is, are these weapons being used in a war the U.S. doesn't necessarily support? And so a situation like Yemen is a great example of that, where a lot of these Gulf countries have used U.S. weapons in Yemen, despite the U.S. ostensibly saying these are not to be used in Yemen. And so we wanted to look at those risks overall and to see, again, where is the U.S. selling weapons? Like, what are the risky zones? And there's countries that are unsurprising, right? Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar. These are countries that are involved in war, that are very corrupt, that are have very little human freedom to get weapons. The Middle East, generally speaking, is a hot spot. So you also have Egypt there, you have Israel there. These are countries that flag is high risk in at least one of the four vectors I mentioned. More often than not, they two, three, and sometimes even all four vectors they rank is highly risky. There are other zones too where the U.S. is sending a lot of weapons that are risky. So Central America, uh, Mexico, those are two kind of areas that get a lot of U.S. weapons and tend to flag very high on the risk index. And so one of the things we found, and this is through five years now of talking to policymakers, is especially in, at the congressional level, they don't feel like there's much that they can do to stop a specific sale. At the level of the State Department, they may want to prevent sales from going to risky places. But every year, they, the State Department releases these human rights reports, and they say Saudi Arabia flags on all of these different human rights issues. 
And then when it comes to the sale, they do nothing to stop it. That those weapons still will get delivered to Saudi Arabia. They will still get delivered to Mexico. And every year, the U.S. spends a lot of money cleaning up the mess. So in Mexico, we're spending double-digit millions of dollars a year collecting weapons that have been sold on black markets or just ended up getting delivered in the wrong hands. In Yemen, we've actually had to send kind of weapons to prevent Saudi Arabia from targeting or accidentally hitting schools and hospitals. Now, those weapons have traditionally been used just to help Saudi Arabia target civilian areas more. But nonetheless, right, it's production. It's money that we are sending to cover up the mess. And it's really kind of sad because you do see that no matter what happens every year, these countries are getting riskier. And in the 2022 Arms Sales Risk Index, what we are finding and what we found over the last five years is the major recipients of U.S. weapons are not getting less risky. And that's what you would hope, right? You would hope whether it's because the U.S. is sending weapons to less risky countries or that the countries that are receiving the weapons kind of kowtow to the United States a little bit more and become less risky. And we're not seeing that. That's not being reflected whatsoever outside of some countries in NATO, which those aren't the countries we're substantially worried about. So long story short, the U.S. sells a lot of weapons to a lot of foreign countries that are profoundly corrupt, undemocratic, and risky. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the the claim that some people make that you know sending weapons to some risky countries might o- over time gradually improve that country's riskiness, and, and that doesn't seem to be true. But do arms sales provide the U.S. with leverage? And then maybe you can talk about what reverse leverage is. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the big question we asked in this 2022 arms sales risk index is do these weapons provide the U.S. with leverage? And I, I remember I've been in so many gut meetings with State Department officials, Defense Department officials, Congress, where they say, just because we don't use the leverage doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And so, that, that right, I mean, it sounds like a joke, but we said, okay, let's take this claim at its word, right? Let's see, is that true, right? We should be able to see it, even if it's not these countries doing everything the U.S. wants. You would assume on things like style of government or making sure these weapons get in the right hands, you would assume that you would see some sort of move in the positive direction, right? That that that, that kind of that leverage exists. And again, we, we found primarily for most countries, it does not. That most countries, even though the U.S. says to Saudi Arabia, we expect better treatment on human rights, Biden says they're a pariah. And then when Biden goes back on Saudi Arabia's a pariah statement, he still says, but they're getting better. And in the data we've collected, that that just isn't true. And so that raises another question, which is, okay, does it happen in reverse? Does a country like Saudi Arabia, because they buy so many U.S. weapons, actually use those purchases to leverage against the United States? And what we found is that that does exist, at least in some specific circumstances. So again, I'm going to use Saudi Arabia as the first example, but then I'll talk a little bit about India. So Saudi Arabia buys a lot of weapons. They have U.S. bases on their territory. And then they use these weapons in the fight in Yemen, right? When they're fighting the Houthis in Yemen, generally speaking, they're killing a lot of civilians. And one of the things we found is the U.S. gets really worried, right? That, oh, we don't want Saudi Arabia killing civilians. So we're going to send them more advanced radar systems. We're going to send them the ability to make sure they don't hit civilian targets. And that doesn't really work. But because it doesn't work, the U.S. keeps sending more because it keeps um, trying to cover up this mess it made. 
The second way in Saudi Arabia it happens is when the Houthis, who've been at war with Saudi Arabia for years and years in Yemen, fire a drone that comes close to hitting the U.S. military base. Well, the U.S. then freaks out. Now, the the reason the U.S. military base is at risk is because the U.S. has been helping Saudi Arabia fight in Yemen for basically since the start. There have been tons of reports on this, various think tanks. Washington posted a study. We have in the risk index quotes from people that were in the CIA where they basically say, no, without U.S. training, weapons, and refueling, Saudi Arabia could not keep fighting in Yemen. So when the Houthis almost hit a U.S. military base, it's because U.S. weapons are letting Saudi Arabia fight this war. But then the U.S. freaks out more, and so they send missile defense systems. They send they they get patriots uh, patriot systems, kind of emergency use authorization into Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia knows this, and they are experts at playing this. They do this all the time with a variety of things, but weapons are a big one. And they will play U.S. fears, whether about the security of American troops, great power competition, right? Saudi Arabia very frequently threatens that if the U.S. doesn't do it, well, then we'll just go to China. And this frightens the U.S., and so the U.S. continues to send more and more weapons. Which leads me to the India point. With great power competition, India has been an expert at threatening to work with Russia especially, but also a little bit with China. And the China threat is less believable just because of geopolitical uh, rivalries between India and China. But the Russia threat is believable. And they tell the U.S., well, you know, if we're not going to get these weapons, we're going to go over to Russia because they'll send us something similar. And, and Turkey does this a lot, too. And that's kind of the third way this leverage ha- this reverse leverage happens, where they basically kind of threaten the U.S. that if you don't sell us these weapons, if you don't do more to protect us, we'll go to one of your great power rivals. And so, again, those so these are kind of like the three broad ways. So way one is bad stuff happens with U.S. weapons, and U.S. sends more weapons to clean up the bad stuff. Way number two is U.S. troops are at risk because the U.S. is funding some sort of conflict with the weapons, and so the U.S. sends more weapons to protect its own troops. And then the third way is just this kind of fear of great power competition. And again, for the third one, there's so many countries that are using this right now throughout the Middle East, but also India, uh, depending on your definition, Turkey is doing this a lot. And so it's kind of happening all over. Turkey recently, I, I believe, basically, the arrangement was a quid pro quo that Turkey will abstain from objecting to Finland's uh, membership in NATO if the United States sells it a bunch of weapons. Yep, F-16s. Turkey wants the F-16s. It certainly seems like the leverage is on the other side, yeah. Yeah, and there, I mean, I remember reading news as this was happening that, oh, Turkey has an ethical issue with letting Finland in. Well, was it really ethical? Was it really historic? Or was it to get what they want? And I think, I mean, we're both realists, right? We kind of come from that world. But I, I don't think there's some moral or historic reason for Turkey's opposition. I think Turkey sees this as an opportunity to improve its own security standing, its own role, and it it, it takes it. Biden got a a less risky score by a small margin than uh, George W. Bush, Obama, and Trump. Explain that. Um, You know how how much lower were what were the scores, and how much lower is Biden, and and why do you think Biden got a, a lower score? Yeah, Biden's definitely lower. I think there's a few reasons for that. The first is that 
one of the indexes we used, the Global Terrorism Index, changed its scoring a little bit. And that kind of meant that a lot of the terrorism scores were just lower. So I think that's kind of the big flag. And we talk about that in the appendix that there, there's just not, we, we weighted against that. I think we kind of helped weight it. So it was more or less even, but there's still some error there. The second reason is Biden tends to send a lot of weapons to less risky countries. So we do this thing called like the average customer risk score. And I think that's what you're referring to. And on the average customer risk score, Biden is definitely lower. But a large part of that is he's sending a lot of weapons to countries like Germany, right, that just have low risk scores. Or, I mean, Taiwan, because the risk index doesn't evaluate the threat of future conflict, because that's like wars in the error term. So it's very difficult to predict that. Taiwan has a very low risk score. And so when you send weapons to Taiwan, it deflates your average customer risk. But one thing we try to make clear is, yeah, Biden may be, I think it's pretty clear, Biden does see the strategic benefits to weapon sales, maybe more than Trump did. And I think he's been very clear about that, almost to a fault. But he's been clear about that. And so I think that is deflating the risk score a little bit, is that he's sending weapons to countries that the U.S. considers key partners and allies that are low risk. But it's important to note, Biden is still sending to a very risky portfolio of countries, especially at the high end. So all of the Gulf countries, right? Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar, you also see Egypt is a big recipient. These are countries that are very risky. Turkey is getting a lot of weapons. Uh, South and Central America are still getting a lot of weapons. And those are risky countries. But the Reality is Biden, I mean, not that I think the Biden administration has any familiarity with the risk index, but if they do, I would say they're artificially deflating their score a little bit by also sending a lot of weapons to more kind of strategic, less risky partners. I wonder if Biden's risk score might have actually increased because of the fact that we've sent so many weapons to Ukraine, but Ukraine has received what's called security assistance, which is categorically distinct from arm sales. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that, but also just in general about the support that the United States has given Ukraine, how much of it, in what form, and with what attendant risks. Yeah. So Ukraine, I mean, really since 2014, has been receiving US weapons and training. Obviously, Russia invades in 2021, and Ukraine now would be, I think, the 10th most well-funded military in the world. I, I could be wrong about that number specifically, but it's very high. Ukraine has bought a little bit. They've bought a few weapons, but generally speaking, Ukraine has gotten weapons through two different forms of security assistance. The first is the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. This was passed by Congress, and it basically guarantees Ukraine a certain level of either foreign military financing, which is we give Ukraine credits to buy U.S. weapons or just through kind of weapons themselves. And the other way is through what's called presidential drawdown authority. And this is the big one, especially when it comes to Taiwan, because Taiwan up until last year never wanted these weapons. And that's because what presidential drawdown authority allows the president to do, do, to do is say, we have these weapon stockpiles that are not being used. They're excess defense articles. We, we will never use these. They are just sitting there. The president can then say, Ukraine, you're going to get these weapons. So 
early on in the conflict, there was all these articles about the javelin and the stinger, right? They're, they're, they're these miraculous weapons that John, you and I could sit down and in 30 minutes be able to use very easily. And that so they didn't require any training and Ukrainians could just use them. But where were they getting all of them? Well, these have been around for a really long time and the U.S. military does not use them all that much. Like they use them, but not significantly. And when the U.S. military uses them, they tend to be new. These are old. These are unused weapons. And the U.S. just takes them and transports them to Ukraine. It, but but in millions. And Ukraine, as the conflict went on, started getting more and more. They got more advanced missile systems. The Biden administration is kind of notorious at this point for saying that we will not send Ukraine X weapon. And then about a month later, miraculously, Ukraine has X weapon that they got from the United States. And that's been with Abrams tanks. It's been with the F-16 training. Now it looks like with ATACMs, like these long-range missiles. Cluster munitions? Yeah, cluster munitions are a big one. Like that, that is one where it's it wasn't just the Biden administration saying no. It was most of the Democratic Party saying no. And then Ukraine starts this counteroffensive. And Barry Posen had a great article that came out yesterday. I believe it was in Foreign Policy that talked about this, that Ukraine's counteroffensive stalled. And that means Ukraine's going to get a lot more security assistance. And the reason it stalled is that while everybody was so focused at the end of the fall about Russia's withdrawal from Kyrgyzstan, Russia was actually doing was solidifying its defenses, right? It was using things like minefields, wire, whatever it is. They use so much of it. But mines are a big one, but they also dug ditches. Like we're talking kind of first world war style defenses, trenches. And turns out, when you are not prepared to go through that, your counteroffensive is really going to slow down. And then they started running out of munitions because they just, I think the Ukrainian military thought they would be able to do this a lot quicker and they were caught by surprise. And so cluster munitions are the big one because Ukraine said, we need munitions. We, we're running out. And what the Biden administration couldn't deliver is the munitions they had been delivering because the U.S. is also running out. Right? We don't have infinite stockpiles. And so these things called cluster munitions, which basically are like, it's one bomb with thousands of bomblets at most. Obviously, you can have variety. There's a variety of different ones. And you drop them and the it goes off in the air. And then hundreds, thousands of bomblets, however many, drop along the battlefield. And these are great if you're trying to get through trenches because you can just explode an entire trench. Now, the reason why Biden was initially opposed to sending them and the Democratic Party's been opposed to sending them is their humanitarian disaster. And, and this is widely accepted, even by people that say we should be sending Ukraine cluster munitions. Everybody acknowledges the problem. That's because there's a dud rate. And by that, I mean there's bomblets that don't explode on initial contact, but they stay there for, they could stay there for 50 years as we're, and we're seeing that right now in uh, Southeast Asia and Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, especially, where there are children today that will walk in the street and blow an arm off because of this bomb that was dropped in the 1970s. So they're humanitarianly very frowned upon. And, and the Biden administration had been frowning upon it until the counteroffensive stalled. And then the United States said, well, we have all these cluster munitions in our stockpiles that because Department of Defense in 2018 has this kind of new rule about cluster munitions, which is they need to have a dud rate 
below 1%. So we have all these cluster munitions we can't use because DOD says we can't use them anymore because they have a dud rate of 25 to 3%. So what are we going to do with them? Well, we're going to send them to Ukraine. And so now Ukraine's using these. It's tragic. And the other problem that Ukraine's realizing right now is that once you use them, then you need to worry about them because there's these unexploded bomblets and you have to advance through that territory. Well, you may hit one of your own cluster munition duds. And that's kind of an argument I tried to make in this piece I wrote for Inkstick is that there's clearly humanitarian, from a humanitarian standpoint, cluster munitions are bad. No, Nobody really disputes that. But from a military standpoint, their use is also limited and they don't really change the facts on the ground. Ukraine's running into their own bomblets. I mean, Ukraine already was struggling with mines and they've basically given themselves more mines they have to get through, through these little bomblets. Such a mess. Yeah. And it doesn't change the fact on the ground, which is that Ukraine is running out of munitions. Ukraine thought it could wage this awesome counteroffensive and it was wrong because Russia really built a great defensive system. And I think there's this kind of phenomenon that's happened in the U.S. media where because early on Ukraine was doing so well, and in the West in general, we have been so used to losing wars. Like my entire lifetime, the last time we kind of saw a quote-unquote victory was the first Iraq war. And ever since then, it's been loss after loss after loss after loss. And Ukraine looks like a win, right? Especially early on. So everybody's all for sending them whatever we need to give them so they can win. And it's this phenomenon where, I mean, CNN had a report that came out today that actually now for the first time, most Americans are not supportive of aiding Ukraine. They think we've given enough to Ukraine. But that didn't stop the Biden administration from sending cluster munitions. And I am not sure that's actually a voting issue, which makes me think we're going to keep seeing this. And Right. This is great. It lets the U.S. empty its stockpile of cluster munitions that it says it can't use anymore. Now, the fear is that these cluster munitions may not only have a two and a half to three percent dud rate. There's some estimates I've seen that goes high as 25 percent, which means when you drop 100 bomblets from one of these things, that means 25 are not going to explode. And they're just going to be there. And Ukraine isn't only firing one munition a day. Right. They're doing it by the thousands. And so you're creating hundreds of these little bomblets every day that don't explode, that are going to be on Ukrainian territory for perpetuity. It's going to make a lot of these cities ungovernable. We've seen this before. But it's security assistance. They didn't need to buy these. We just got to empty our stockpiles. And now the weapons manufacturers can build more that I, I guess they say will meet that 1% criteria. I, I don't know that I believe that. but. That's kind of the framing they're giving. In a piece that you recently co-authored at Reason.com, you wrote, fears of loose weapons in Ukraine have become a reality. Once American weapons arrive, Ukrainian criminals steal them. Explain that. Yeah. So there was this new study that came out through the Government Accountability Office, came from the Department of Defense Inspector General. And it was kind of, there's these reports that come out. There's been two now. And the first says that, you know, we're giving these weapons to transport from Poland, but because they're happening so fast and because the people receiving those weapons are untrained on how to categorize them, we're losing count of what we've sent. And this has played a role. So it came out a few months ago that 
the Biden administration actually under or overvalued what it's delivered to Ukraine. So it could deliver more now because it was already authorized to deliver more. And this is because we're not counting them well. We're sending them so quickly and in so many, such a high quantity that when they get to Poland for transport, they're not counted correctly. So that's the first problem, right? And that's a big problem because we don't know what we're sending. We don't know what we've sent. And that makes tracking it really difficult. The second report that came out came out recently. And what this report said is actually Ukrainian like criminal organizations were getting their hands on these weapons. And this is a problem in war, right? It, Ukraine starts, Zelensky says, anybody who wants to fight can have a gun, right, with ammunition. Well, that makes all these guns the U.S. sent untrackable. And it's kind of ironic because the State Department says it does this thing called Leahy vetting. It does it for technically all security systems where it makes sure it gets the right place and that it's not going to units that have prior, uh, prior, like in the past, abused human rights. The problem with that is in a war zone, it seems to me impossible that that is actually happening. There's not enough time to check who is getting these weapons and that the person getting these weapons or the unit getting these weapons is actually not using them incorrectly or to abuse human rights or has previously abused human rights. And one of the reasons we know that is the Azov Battalion, which at one point was a neo-Nazi kind of militant group that's tried to moderate, but as recently as I think 2018, the State Department and their human rights report about Ukraine was saying the Azov Battalion is kidnapping people, right? And so all of a sudden, these units that five years ago, State Department was recognizing as a human rights violator are getting weapons. That makes it seem like the U.S. actually is not checking who's receiving these weapons. And part of that's the nature of war. It's impossible. We, we are not sending troops to check. But it's dangerous. You know, in just in general, as we talk, and from reading your report, it's it's clear the United States engages in a lot of the most risky behavior when it comes to its arms sales. But it also seems to be the case that any of the domestic rules and laws and regulations that we have with respect to arms sales are essentially a sham. Um, and that brings us to the next thing I want to talk about. I remember way back in the Obama administration, there was a kerfuffle over the coup in Egypt, which overthrew uh, the President Mohamed Morsi. The controversy was over the fact that the administration refused to call the coup a coup. And they did this because acknowledging that there was a coup would mean U.S. arms sales and other support for Egypt would have to stop in order to comply with U.S. law. Plainly put, the U.S. was not acting in accordance with its own laws. Uh, and that actually probably generalizes on, on this arms sales issue. But this scenario is replaying itself now in the, in the Biden administration, um, because as you mentioned earlier, there was recently a coup in Niger, which is a country whose, whose military the United States has trained and, and supplied with weapons. Um, it's sort of a perfect cautionary tale that you could draw out of your, your work. And the Biden administration is refusing to acknowledge it as a coup so far. Can you just tell us what happened in Niger, what the U.S. relationship there is, and how the administration is responding? Yeah, so Niger is kind of one of these West African countries that the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations have decided are key to countering China, 
and Chinese expansion. So because of that, since the start of the Trump administration, the U.S. has delivered very close to $300 million of weapons to Niger. And that doesn't count training its military or anything like that. This is a tale we've heard. It's old as time. It's been my entire life that we arm this military and then this military does really bad stuff with the weapons we give them. And in Niger, there was a democratically elected president, which in West Africa is rare, to say the least. And this military that is armed with U.S. weapons and trained by U.S. soldiers overthrew the government, right? They overthrew the democratically elected president. This, by all definitions of the term, is a coup, just like in Egypt when the military overthrew Mohamed Morsi. And the administration doesn't want to call it a coup because I think the administration is so focused on great power competition with China and so worried about what China's influence in West Africa is going to be that they're going to try to keep the relationship with the country, even if it's no longer a democracy. Now, this raises questions, right? Biden says like he wants his foreign policy to be about democracy, right? He wants a democratic foreign policy. Seems weird when then you ostensibly are supporting an author transition into an authoritarian government. And I will say the case in Egypt that makes it a little bit different is Egypt is at least a country most Americans know, right? Most Americans, like I remember Anderson Cooper in Cairo for two weeks during that coup. It was in the news. Niger is not going to be talked about. I think in a week, everybody will forget that Niger and Nigeria are two different countries, right? And and that means the administration is just going to get away with not calling this a coup and with probably cozying up to whatever authoritarian leadership comes out of this military transition. And it's a story we've heard over and over and over again. Frankly, it's a story that long-term in Ukraine would not surprise me if something similar happens, right? When you give militaries that are not necessarily democratic, or even not just militaries, but just random people weapons, and you say, don't lose the weapons or don't do anything bad with the weapons, it's a little bit like it, when you tell your little siblings or your children or whatever, and you're on a beach and you say, don't go in the water. What's the first thing they do? That They dip, they dip their foot in the water, right? It, it's, this is a very similar situation where we're saying, don't do anything bad with these weapons. And then they do something bad with it. And then the U.S. is put in the position of not, okay, do we stop doing it? But how do we justify it, right? How do we justify them doing this bad thing with the weapons? And we see that with these major arms sales. So Saudi Arabia and Yemen, as I keep saying, is an example. We see it with security assistance and military training, like we saw in Egypt. And now we're seeing in Niger, we saw in Chad earlier. And this is the unfortunate bit. It's not just that the U.S. doesn't really consider risk in any of its weapons transfers. It's kind of the opposite, that the U.S., beyond just not caring, the U.S. tries to justify it, right? And it searches for ways to justify it. And, and I mean, my dissertation kind of looks at the history of Congress getting involved in U.S. weapons transfers. And Congress has passed laws uh, almost 60 times since the mid-1970s when the Arms Export Control Act, which is kind of the piece of legislation that governs all arms sales, was passed. And the reality is most of the legislation Congress passes, most of the time when Congress tries to do something, it's very small. And I am one to celebrate the small victories, right? Not sending weapons to human rights abusers, that's a small victory. I think the Leahy laws are garbage. It's bureaucratic red tape. 
But at least it's something. At least there's some sort of red tape there that means, I mean, to a certain degree, it's bad. But we're, we're funding somebody to try to look into this, right? We're creating jobs, I guess, to try to justify this thing that doesn't really, it, it doesn't really work, but but it's there, right? But at some point, we have to think, like, these small victories, well, are they even victories, right? Is the Are the Leahy laws that, again, supposedly govern all security existence, but seem to actually do nothing, is that really a victory? Or is it just increasing the size of kind of the U.S. defense industry for no apparent reason other than to say you're doing something? And that's my fear, is that I, th- I don't think we're getting much better. I, I fear that it will take a something, I mean, small to make it get much, much worse. And right, we're seeing that a little bit with Ukraine. I, I keep I, nobody wants to talk about this, but even before the conflict's over, we may start seeing bad stuff happen with U.S. weapons that were delivered there. We're already seeing Ukraine not necessarily list like Ukrainian military members not listen to U.S. instructions, and frankly, that's just kind of small potatoes. But my fear is, what if a Ukrainian military unit? decides to shoot up a school in Ukraine, right? And kill a bunch of Ukrainian civilians. Or what if even worse, maybe, Ukraine takes U.S. weapons, like a Ukrainian it takes U.S. weapons and hits somebody in Moscow and kills somebody in Moscow, right? Because then you're looking at World War III. And that, to me, is the fear, is that it's easy in every single instance to not consider the risk of sales, right? In Niger, you can make the argument that if we consider the risk, if we call it a coup, China's going to swoop in, and that's going to be bad. I don't think that would be bad, but it's not my logic here. It's their logic. But the fear is, okay, well, we keep making these excuses for every every single risky sale or transfer, and then eventually something really, really bad is going to happen, and there's no such thing as a time machine to help us go back in time and stop this from happening. You recently co-authored a piece, um, you were talking a lot about Saudi Arabia before, uh, about the Biden administration's push for normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And the recent word that Biden may be considering giving Riyadh a security guarantee of some kind uh, as a quid pro quo for normalizing relations with Israel. And as it happens, these are also two of our top recipient countries. Both of them have used US-supplied weapons to commit human rights abuses. But there is also major problems with establishing some kind of actual uh, commitment to Saudi Arabia. Uh, do you want to comment on that normalization push and the concerns that you have? Yeah. I mean, this goes back to the Abraham Accords from the Trump administration, right? And, and the irony is the Trump administration, the right Trump comes out and says he solved Middle East peace. Right, he created normalization between the UAE and Israel. Middle East peace is achieved. I mean, it's absurd when you think about it, but it's actually had like this massive impact on the United States trying to get most of the Arab Gulf to normalize relations with Israel. A lot of the Middle East normalized relations. A security guarantee with Saudi Arabia is perhaps the most insane thing I've heard when it comes to U.S. foreign policy since the decision to invade Iraq in two thousand three. This is a country that, I mean, right now reports just came out that Saudi Arabia knew a lot more about the 9-11 plot than we even thought they did in the mid-2000s, that they were, Saudi government officials were housing the terrorists that committed 9-11 in the United States. They have destabilized 
pretty much every country you can think of in the Middle East that's been at war, Saudi, Saudi Arabia has played a role in destabilizing those countries. They very frequently don't even kind of care what the U.S. thinks about certain aspects of foreign policy, right? So they, when Russia invades Ukraine and the United States asks Saudi Arabia to produce more oil, Saudi Arabia says no, right? And so they, they're not a good partner, and they are still the number one by far, by, by miles and miles. They are the number one recipient of U.S. weapons every year. And every year, all these defense companies prioritize whatever they can give to Saudi Arabia. And that's without a security commitment. But Saudi Arabia is looking for a NATO Article 5 style security commitment from the United States. And so then the question happens, well, what happens when the Houthis shoot a drone at Saudi Arabia? Is the U.S. going to war in Yemen? What happens if Saudi Arabia tempts Iran to do something like accidentally hit a ship, right? Then are, are we going to war with Iran? And I think Saudi Arabia is very cognizant of it. I, there's this kind of common thing in U.S. foreign policy circles to just assume every other country's dumb, right? And every other country, no, they're not going to take advantage of us. We're smarter than they are. Saudi Arabia for 50 years has taken advantage of the United States. And my big fear is that if we come with this security guarantee, Saudi Arabia is not going to wait. They're going to start doing things that allow them to trigger this kind of Article 5 style security commitment. And that's terrifying. I mean, the fact that the Biden administration that comes in and says they're going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah, that they don't, that Saudi Arabia abuses human rights, the fact that this administration, not the Trump administration, right? Not, not, the, not the George W. Bush administration, but the Biden administration is willing to at least consider a security guarantee. I mean, to a certain degree, it's what happens when you let Brett McGurk run your foreign policy. But, but it's also that it is terrifying because the costs are massive. And the U.S. wants to care about great power politics with China. But if you do this with Saudi Arabia, China is the last thing you need to worry about. You need to worry about all of a sudden Yemen, Syria, Iran, Bahrain, like all these countries you have to worry about. It's hard to imagine what people imagine the upside to such a deal would be. I mean, why do we even want normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia in the first place? What uh, bottom line does that give U.S. interest? I'm not quite sure. But um, we have a final question here. I think probably you and I would generally prefer uh, a radically reduced U.S. arms sales uh, set of policies. Um, but uh, as you have pointed out, there's plenty of bipartisan political support for them, um, and so it doesn't seem like they're going to be halted tomorrow. Short of you know your our preferences, um, do you have some recommendations for how to make arms sales less risky? If, if we're going to be doing this ridiculous stuff, how do we make it less bad? Yeah. So the big thing I have hammered home since before I even started full-time at Cato, like when I was writing with Trevor Thrall, was this thing called flip the script legislation. And this type of legislation is really important because the way arms sales work now is the president agrees to a sale and then Congress has 30 days to pass a two-thirds majority in both chambers to disapprove of the sale. That hasn't happened because that is, with any degree of partisanship, that's impossible. It will never happen. And with a Democratic president, it's even less likely to happen 
because the Democrats don't want to go against their own party leader. What flip the script legislation would do is rather than make Congress disapprove of a sale, it would say every sale the president agrees to will not go through unless Congress approves of it. Now, this does two things. One, it means congresspersons are going to have to tell their constituents, we want to do this sale. We want to do this transfer to Ukraine. We want to sell these weapons to Saudi Arabia so they can use them in Yemen. It would make them have to justify it. So that's a big one. I, I think that does create constraints that don't otherwise exist. But the other thing is because the president won't veto a sale he agreed to, that means the presidential veto over arms sales goes away. And so that means it's no longer a two-thirds majority, it's a simple majority. And that's a lot easier to achieve, and we've seen that achieved before under the Trump administration. Numerous times Congress got that simple majority, but then Trump vetoed it, and they couldn't get the two-thirds majority. So that, to me, is the big one. I think that type of legislation is a game changer. There are smaller things, though, that the U.S. can do also. I think, generally speaking, treating the Leahy laws seriously and applying them beyond just security assistance to all arms sales is important, right? We know these countries abuse human rights. And we know because of the Leahy laws, that should stop these transfers. And we don't take them seriously. We actually try to get around them. And I think just treating stuff like that seriously and saying, hey, this military unit that killed 14 people uh, just for fun uh, on some random day in Niger, may maybe they we shouldn't keep giving them weapons. That unit shouldn't receive weapons. And part of the problem is the Leahy laws were started, it, it was passed, it, again, it's named after Senator Patrick Leahy, but they were passed under a Republican Congress because the Republican Congress wanted kind of cover so they could keep sending weapons to Colombia. So they were able to say, we're not sending them to Colombian units that are abusing human rights because the Leahy laws prevent us from doing that. We're sending them to the good Colombian units. And that's a right. The, the Leahy laws were, it's fruit from the poison tree. They weren't passed to do anything. But I think that doesn't mean they always don't have to do anything. They could be treated seriously. And then finally, I think the U.S. needs to monitor not just that these weapons arrive in the right hands, but that they stay in the right hands. And that requires tracking. It requires sending people to countries that receive these weapons specifically so they watch and make sure those weapons don't get transferred elsewhere to other groups. If all three th of these things passed, do I think risk would be removed in sales? Totally no, absolutely not. I think you'd still see sales to Saudi Arabia. You would still see transfers to Ukraine. You'd still see transfers to Niger. But I think it would be a really positive step forward in preventing the worst of the worst sales. Jordan Cohen, thanks for coming on. 